0: And now if you would turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Ezra. We have reached beyond now the the halfway point of the book of Ezra. We are looking at the, the final section here. And there is a very important event that we will see here in this text, that it is, it is changing now. And so let us now look at Ezra chapter 7. Hear now the very word of God. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Ezra, chapter 7. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saria, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, King of Kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is at Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. (coughs) And you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem." And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to 100 talents of silver... One hundred cores of wheat, one hundred baths of wine, one hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall be not lawful to impose tribute. ...custom or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God." And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Thus far the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we we ask this evening that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ from this word. That you would show us our duty to you, O Lord. And that you would teach us, O Lord, to trust you more. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening we are confronted with what seems to be an odd truth, a change in the story. Do you notice it? It begins here in verse 1 of chapter 7. That Ezra, the priest, the son of all of these men, comes now onto the scene. Why is that odd? Well, I think it goes without saying, but I will say it anyway, that we're in Ezra chapter 7. And finally now, Ezra comes on the scene. The bulk of what we have dealt with precedes this coming of Ezra. There is a new chapter in the story, as it were. A long time has passed. The Israelites have returned from exile in Babylon. That happened in five 37 BC some 16 years later They began building the temple in earnest after leaving off it for some period of time And then there was that great celebration that we looked at last week with the temple being finished and dedicated and the Passover being celebrated And perhaps two of the most understated words, at least in this book, if not in the Old Testament, come up now at the beginning of chapter 7. Now, after this. And we think, well, this is on the heels of the temple. Surely there are troubles and struggles to happen after the temple has just been completed. The only problem is, the after this sums up a period of time that is longer than the life of most Israelites. It's 58 years between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. To be honest about it, most of those who celebrated the laying of the foundation of the temple and the completion and the celebration of the Passover are now dead. They are no longer on the scene. And we see here that in the span of time, as we look over the next few chapters, that much has still come to challenge the people of Israel. And God raises up a man for this time. A man by the name of Ezra. And so this evening we're going to be introduced to him, a man who is a priest, who is a preacher and a prophet a man who is a great reformer, and we will see him in action. But for this evening, I'd like us to see three things about the character and the person of Ezra that will shape the way we look at how he acts later. First, we will see that Ezra heard God's call. Ezra was a man of God who heard the call of God. And then secondly, we will see that Ezra loved God's Word. Now, this should also go without saying that the man of God who is called by God should love the Word of God. But in our day and age, a true love for the Word of God is much rarer than it should be. And then the third thing that we will see is that Ezra not only heard God's call and loved God's Word, but that he saw God's sovereignty. He saw that God was in control and that this was a great comfort and a spur for action. Ezra heard God's call. He loved God's word and he saw God's sovereignty. Well, let's begin then by looking at the beginning of chapter 7 and how the man of God is called by God. As we've said, almost 60 years have passed. And there is now a new generation that needs to be raised up to continue on the work of God. This is something that confronts every generation. And I think it is a challenge to those of us who find the Reformed faith near and dear to our hearts. Because I think on some level we would be satisfied to see a replay of, of the giants of the past. We would be satisfied if we had to dress up like 16th century Scots Day or to tell stories of Calvin and his work in Geneva or to speak of the boldness of Luther or Huss or Wycliffe and all of these men were used by the Lord And it is an important part of the history of the church. But you see, we cannot, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, live in the past. The church is not a museum. It is an army. It is a school. It is a hospital. It is a place where the people of God are active in the here and in the now. And God knows this. And you see, because of this, in every generation, God raises up not only believers for Himself, but He raises up leaders. He raises up men who seek to glorify Him and to lead others into a deeper knowledge of God's Word and a greater walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. God is patient. He's far more patient than we are, is He not? His plan unfolds not in terms of days or weeks, not even in terms of years or decades, but in terms of centuries and millennia. God knows exactly what He is doing. And in addition to being patient, He is also not lacking in resources. He can gather up to Himself His people to build His kingdom generation upon generation. And so we see here now Ezra being told by the the great king of Persia, Artaxerxes, to travel to the Promised Land. Now, Why, if Ezra is such a valiant man, a holy man, a priest of the living God, why is Ezra not already returned to Jerusalem? Why is Ezra not there for the building of the temple? The answer, I think, is very simple. He wasn't born yet. He wasn't alive. And God has now raised him up at this point to go. We might also ask ourselves then the next question, which is, why did his parents not go? Was Ezra raised in some household of weak believers? Do we jump to conclusions and judge Ezra's parents? I don't think we should do that. You see... It is a temptation we face when we think God's plan needs to go according to a certain way that anyone who is not on board with that plan is somehow falling short. They're a weak Christian. They're not as involved as they should be. They should be doing things that that, that I'm doing in, in pretty much exactly the same way I'm doing them. And if not, then somehow they need to get with God's program. But you see... There are many good reasons why Ezra's family would have remained in Babylon. Not the least being that he came from a family of priests and they needed priests to teach God's law and to encourage God's people, not just in Jerusalem, but in Babylon. You remember that the bulk of the Jews remained in Babylon and did not travel back to Jerusalem. There was only some 50,000 who traveled back. And so... I think perhaps Ezra's family was involved in encouraging and teaching God's people in exile. We also, I think, need to be aware that his family might not have been able to make the trip. They might have been older. We see here that Ezra took four months to make this trip. And we'll see in later chapters, it was not an easy journey. Bandits on the road, weight to carry. And it was not an easy thing even for a young man. But I think thirdly, without judgment, we might remind ourselves that the people of God, even Bible people, get afraid. They're afraid to leave their homes. They're afraid to strike out and do new things. They're afraid of what the future holds, and it makes them a bit unwilling at times to step out in faith. Now, this doesn't make them weak Christians. I think it makes them just like you and me. As we struggle with our own fears and doubts, we have to remember that the people of God are real people like us. And that means not only that we share fears with them, but that we share responsibility with them. As the Lord uses them to do great things, so the Lord will use you to do great things here and now, in his kingdom. And so Ezra then is called by God, and that call goes a long way back. You see, I think we only think about the call of God in the here and the now. God telling us to do something now. But for those of us who have been blessed to grow up in covenant families, we understand that the call of God precedes even our birth, doesn't it? The call of Ezra started back in the days of the Exodus. Do you see that? Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron, the high priest. God had in mind, in his plan, Ezra when he formed the priesthood and made Aaron the first high priest. It goes all the way back and it is a lineage of priests. Many of these men are men that you don't know. I'll just highlight one of them for you to give you an idea how God works down through the centuries. Of course, you know Aaron, and you know Phinehas, his son, but you may not remember the name of Zadok. He's just one of the priests in the mix of this lineage. But you see, Zadok was the man who was priest before David. Zadok was the man who was charged with holding the kingdom during a very vulnerable time. You see, during the passage between David and Solomon, it was Zadok, the priest, who remained loyal to God's people. It was he who anointed Samuel, or excuse me, Solomon. It was he who remained loyal to the purpose of God. And so Ezra is in this great line. And this line is laid out not simply so that I can be challenged by reading a bunch of Hebrew names. This line is laid out so that his lineage, his credentials, would be seen before all. Many of you know exactly what credentials are. You carry them with you all the time at work, don't you? Nowadays, it seems that in most offices, you can't go from one section of the building to the other without these little badges that are clipped to your shirts or your coats or your pockets, right? You must scan them before some kind of reader in order to gain entrance through the door. Well, they didn't have computer card readers back then. And so, in order so that the people of God would know who Ezra was and know that he was an authority, his lineage is laid out before them. There is no doubt before those who were in Jerusalem that Ezra is called by God. We see it here in verse 6 in this little phrase. This Ezra, the one who is the descendant of Aaron, the one who is of the family of the priests, this is the one that went up from Babylon right before the Lord. He is a priest, but he is also a man of authority as well because he has more than just credentials. This lineage is laid out not just to give him credentials, but it is to tell people to pay attention to him. He's a man of authority. He carries it, I would imagine, even in the way he walked and the way he spoke. We are told, I think, in the way that he is described, that we are to honor this man. And this is how the Israelites treated him. In terms of the history of the church, Ezra is often called the second Moses. He is a man of authority. And he also has credentials not just from God, not just from the priesthood, but also from the king himself. He is trusted by the king. He is a scribe who is skilled in the law of Moses, and the king granted him everything that he asked. He has the trust of the king of Persia. And because of this, he's put in charge of others. Do you see this in verse 13? The king makes a decree that anyone else who wants to go back can go back under Ezra. He trusts Ezra to lead a group back to Jerusalem and to do so in a fashion that will not involve rebellion and treachery. And he is sent out on official business by the king and his seven counselors, we see in verse 14. The king is not just merely tolerating Ezra, he is supporting and giving him authority. And we need to see something from this. Ezra has the support of the king, the authority of the king. And he doesn't abuse that. You see, far too often today, when Christians are placed in positions of authority or power, they don't do what they're asked to do. They turn it into their own personal platform. And you see, that's not what Ezra does. He doesn't abandon the faith. He's not silent, but he realizes that because he has been given a job, he must do the job. And I think this is important for us to understand. Because you see, Ezra has given power itself from the king to bring stability to this region. You may wonder why the king is so concerned about little old Jerusalem. Why he wants things set up right. Why he wants people to obey the law. Why he wants Ezra to be in charge. And you see, it's because the king is now dealing with a rebellion. The Greeks from Athens, you remember them. You know the story of the uh, not the, Pel- the the war against persia the battle of marathon the battle of salamis well as they were fighting persia they got the bright idea to take a couple of hundred ships and to go to egypt and to stir up a rebellion in egypt against persia and you can understand how important egypt would be to an empire like persia we've just been studying that egypt is one of the key places where you can find food in the midst of famine So, of course, the king of Persia is concerned about this. And the last thing that he wants is rebellion to spread from Egypt up into Palestine, over into Syria, causing him difficulties. And so he invests Ezra with a great deal of power. But God is also at work here, giving Ezra power. Because, you see, God is using the power that he has given to the king as a way of avoiding conflict among God's people. See, Ezra comes in as a man not to be trifled with. God is going to use him to reform the people of God, to proclaim the Word of God, and he comes in with great power and authority. Power and authority, not just to enforce any law, but God's law. Ezra is indeed a man who heard God's call. And when we hear God's call, and when we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, it must of necessity be that we are a people who love God's word. We see this in Ezra. He is a man who was a scribe. Now, I think we have the wrong view of scribes when we hear that word. Because we cannot help in Ezra 7, to have our view colored by the Gospels. Right? And the scribes are the bad guys. They're the nitpickers. The penny pinchers. The ones who are trying to keep and seize authority. The ones who are trying to defeat Jesus. But you see, that's not the case here in the days of Ezra. The scribes here are ones who are skilled in the law of Moses. And it's interesting, this word has the idea of they were quick. They were rapid in what they did. They understood the law because they spent so much time in the law. Have you ever had the experience of speaking to someone about, say, history or current events? And before you could even get the question completely out, they had the answer? You see this all the time on Shows like Jeopardy. They don't even wait for poor Alex Trebek to finish the question and they buzz in and they've got the answer. It's because they're well studied. They not only know the answer, they know the question from half of the question. That's what Ezra was like. He spent so much time with God's Word that he was quick to understand, quick to share the Word of God. And he understood what God's Word is. Do you see this here? In verse 6, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Now, the law of Moses is not the Ten Commandments. It's not even just the statutes that are found in a few of the books. The law of Moses is shorthand for the entirety of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Ezra knows that this is the law of Moses. And he also knows that it is given by God. Do you see this? The Lord, the God of Israel, had given this. Now, this makes Moses, or excuse me, Ezra, poor 5th century BC man that he is, far wiser than modern professors. Because you see, for the last 100 or 200 years, academics and scholars have spent all of the energy that they can attacking the books of Moses. Saying, we're not even sure if there was a Moses. And if there was, we don't think that he wrote the books. And if he did, he only wrote some of it. And things were changed around. You see, they don't want to take the authority of God's word, so they undermine it. We see this everywhere. Perhaps the saddest thing is that this is becoming all too common in the church of Jesus Christ. Even in churches that would say that they follow the Bible, they will take sections of the Bible and say, Well, you know, we don't really think God wrote that part. And that allows us to ignore the commands there. But you see, not Ezra. He understood and knew that the Word of God was exactly that, written by God Himself so he studied it. But he wasn't just a student. He wasn't just an academic. You see, verse 10 tells us that Ezra had not only set his heart to study the law of God, but he also set his heart to do it. That's a hard little phrase, isn't it? In our day and age, there are plenty who are willing to look at the Word of God, study the Word of God in the abstract. Colleges are full of the Bible as literature classes. Churches are full of Bible studies where people are willing to debate the Greek or the Hebrew or concordances or language. But you see, that's not what the Bible is for. The Bible is not just to be some source of interesting information. The Bible is a book of life. And Ezra knows this and he hears the word of God and he obeys it. He does it. He practiced God's word in his daily life. And we will see that that is what gave him the power and the authority and the drive to be a reformer along God's people. Because the Word of God is not merely to be heard and forgotten. It is to be acted on. And the third thing that Ezra knew about the Word of God is that he was compelled to teach it as well. Do you see this in verse 10? He not only set his heart to study, but he set his heart to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It was not enough simply for this to be truth for Ezra. And others could have their own truth. No. You see, because not only is the Bible true, and not only is the Bible to be acted on by us, the Bible is true for all people at all times. It is absolute truth. And Ezra treated it that way, he taught it to others. Do you have that view of the scriptures? Are the Scriptures not just something for you, but are they something that you know your children cannot live without? That your grandchildren cannot live without? That your neighbors cannot live without? That your co-workers cannot live without? That your schoolmates cannot live without? You see, that's how Ezra views the Word of God. He wanted to see it practiced by others, passed down to other generations, so that God might be glorified. Ezra was a man who heard God's call and who loved God's Word. The third and final thing that we see here this evening is that Ezra was a man who saw God's sovereignty. He first and foremost saw it in God's control of the world. We might ask our question, where does all of this come from? Where does all of this ability for Ezra come from? Well, it comes from a secular kingdom, from a pagan king. Ezra has been placed in charge of civil affairs of the nation, very much like a man who would be an older contemporary of Ezra's, Daniel. And you see, he was called to act in this way, and he understood that God was not merely in charge of his church. And everything else was chaos. No, God is in charge of all of the kingdoms of the world. Do you believe that today? Is God in charge of inflation today in America? Is God in charge of our debt ceiling? Is He in charge of our wars? Is He in charge of our culture? Yes, He is. He's in charge of all of the universe. And you see, Ezra here begins to act like Daniel, to know that he has his place in the world, and he acts for God's glory in the place where God has put him. We are not of the world, but we must remember that we are in the world. We cannot act as if we live on some deserted island apart from our neighbors, friends, and fellow citizens. You see, Ezra knows that God is sovereign. And in verse 27, he blesses the Lord for this. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. You see, in that one phrase, Ezra says, everything that has been done has been God's work. It's not a coincidence. It's not because the king was having a good day. It's not because I had the right words to say. It's because God wants this to happen and He has the heart of the King in His hand. But Ezra also saw that God was sovereign much more personally. You see, we see later in verse 28 that He took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. You see, Ezra knows that not only is God in charge of everything out there, God is in charge of everything in here as well. It's a very personal touch. That God is the source of all of the blessings that have come to Ezra. And it is because of God's love that Ezra can go on. It is because of God's love that he can take courage. That he can gather up other men. That he can act. Fearlessly. You see, this is what gives us hope and courage in the midst of our fear. You remember that fear we spoke of before? What gives us hope and courage is not knowing the immediate end. It is knowing that God's hand is upon us. And that He is with us in all that we do. There's a third and final thing that we see here about God's sovereignty. And Ezra sees this as he goes out 60 years later after the temple has been rebuilt. And we will see in weeks to come that he has a lot of work in front of him. The work that he has to do in building up the people of God looks like the kind of work that needs to be done when Daryl and his crew rolls up on one of these discrepit houses in Houston to rebuild them. He has to start tearing down even before building up. That's what Ezra will do. But you see, Ezra knows that God is sovereign and part of his sovereignty is that he never gives up on his people. Are you tempted to give up on God's people? Are you tempted to say... Well, the time of the American church has passed. Well, I don't know that anything will happen in the world today. I wish Jesus would come back tomorrow because God can't do anything with this mess that's down here now. I'm sure they said that in Ezra's day. But you see, God doesn't give up on His people. Because he knows that he is the one who is sovereignly at work in their lives. And when we, like Ezra, can see this, even in a glimpse, it gives us great hope and encouragement and empowers us to action. This is the power and the authority of Ezra. He's a man who knew he was called by God. Knew that he loved the Word of God. And he knew that the God of the Word was sovereign. Is this the God that you serve? Do you love His Word? Do you sense His call upon your life today? Even if you don't know where it will take you. You see, there is a sense in which by the Lord's grace there is a little bit of Ezra in each of us. To know the Lord. To hear Him in His Word. And to trust Him with His people. Let's pray.